In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines a radical framework for Christian living. It includes profound wisdom on humility, love, forgiveness, and righteousness, challenging his followers to embrace a higher standard of morality. But despite its centrality in Christian doctrine being recorded both in the Bible as well as the Book of Mormon, there exists a profound disparity between the teachings and the actual practice of those teachings. But why is this? Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to Teacher and Zion Podcast. You know, the teachings of Jesus can potentially be divided into two parts, the gospel and then the doctrine of Christ. And most people have probably never really considered these two things as being different. And indeed, the gospel and the doctrine of Jesus are inseparably connected. But the word gospel simply means the good news. And I believe it encapsulates all of the teachings of Christ, which includes his core doctrine on salvation. In the Book of Mormon, Jesus encapsulates concisely what his doctrine is, which is how we are saved. It's incredibly simple and does not require membership in any church denomination or anything involving temples. In fact, Jesus warns us in 3 Nephi that anyone who takes away from or adds anything more to this simple doctrine and calls it his doctrine comes of evil and that hell waiteth to receive such. The essence of this doctrine is that salvation comes by believing in Jesus Christ, repenting of our sins and being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. Whereas the gospel of Jesus incorporates not only the doctrine of salvation, but all of Christ's teachings, the good news about the kingdom of God, the promises that he makes to those of us who covenant with him, the authority of the believer, including healing the sick and casting out devils, as well as all of the teachings included in the Sermon on the Mount. By examining the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, we know that salvation is not the end of discipleship, but the beginning. And this is where Christianity, I believe, and Book of Mormon believers are included in that, generally falters. You see, I believe that making a covenant with God through the redemption that Christ offers is supposed to initiate an ongoing, life-changing process in which our very natures are to be transformed. We are not only to believe on Jesus for salvation, but become one of his disciples. We're supposed to experience that mighty change of heart that Alma speaks about and be crucified with Christ as Paul preaches and becoming more and more Christ-like each day of our life. 
Even as John the Baptist told his disciples regarding Jesus when he said, I must decrease as he increases. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us how, as his disciples, we are to live. It illustrates how to fulfill the two great commandments, to love God and to love our fellow man. Additionally, it pivots and makes some course corrections from the law of Moses, even before Jesus fulfills the law at the cross. It also contains promises to all of those who suffer, who are meek and humble, and who take up their cross even as Jesus did. If you ask any Christian whether they believe in the teachings found in the Sermon on the Mount, they will invariably say yes. But the meaning of the word believe can be tricky for modern readers. We are told in Romans 10, 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it is this verse that much of Christianity bases the entirety of their belief about salvation. And yet, Jesus asked the question, Why call me Lord and do not the things I tell you? We also read where James stated that while we can say that we believe in Jesus, even the demons believe and tremble. Going on to write that, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And therefore, a scriptural argument could be made that if a person actually believes in Jesus, that they will also follow his sayings and submit themselves to his commandments. And if we don't, do we truly believe on him? Or are we like the man who cried, I believe, only help my unbelief. Or perhaps we're like Peter, who, after being sent out to heal the sick and cast out demons, the Lord turned to and said, Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. How many have testimonies, seen prayers answered, witnessed miracles perhaps, and had the Holy Spirit work through them, and yet maybe are not fully converted yet. While most believers will certainly confess to believing in the Sermon on the Mount, the practical application of these teachings in everyday life appears inconsistent for many. The dissonance may stem from various factors, including social, cultural influences, personal interpretation, or perceived challenges in application. The reason why I wanted to examine this topic is that a few years back, the Holy Spirit posed a question to me. I was asked if anyone in the church truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not a question you would expect. I mean, on the surface, the answer would appear to be yes, of, of course. But then a couple of the challenging verses from the Sermon on the Mount were impressed upon my mind at that moment. And upon reflection, I found a need to consider the question on a deeper level. 
And just by way of example, some of these more challenging passages would include things like, if anyone sues you to take your shirt, hand over your coat as well, and give to him who asks of you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And finally, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now I have to suppose that if the Spirit is posing this question to me regarding whether the church truly believes these things, I must assume there's a reason for it, and that the reason has to do with God's great desire for us to fully become who he has called us to be. My response to this experience was to teach a class on the topic at the local congregation I was attending, and it was done for the express purpose of having a discussion. We went line by line over the Sermon on the Mount and discussed its application in our lives. And I knew that questions would arise, but I was honestly surprised by how directly people attempted to make excuses for why they could not obey certain teachings based on various circumstances or questioned whether Jesus really meant what he seemed to be very plainly saying. And even so, I can't look down on anyone for this. I will freely disclose to you that I have many questions myself. Some of these sayings are hard sayings when it really comes to the practical application of them. However, realizing the need for me to personally answer the question myself that was posed by the Holy Spirit, ultimately my response to whether or not I truly believe the entirety of the gospel message, including the Sermon on the Mount, you know, knowing that multiple witnesses bear record of it, I can only answer that I must trust in faith that the sayings are true and that God intends us to follow them. Indeed, even the hardest sayings, like turn the other cheek and do not return evil, but bless those who are troubling you, those I believe we must embrace all the more. And precisely because they are hard. As Jesus said, if you love only those who love you, what reward have you? Even the wicked do the same. And after all, we know also that the servant is not above his master. They persecuted Jesus. They will persecute us. Should our response to that persecution be any different? Now, I freely admit that I fail to uphold these principles. In my daily commute to work, for example, I am hard-pressed to think kindly or bless those people who wrongly believe they are in a NASCAR race and weaving in and out of traffic and putting the lives of drivers around them at risk. I must admit that if I were placed in circumstances like the early Christians faced, where myself or my family are being killed for our faith, I would indeed be severely tested. I will circle back and touch on that later, 
and also share a vision, one that I had nearly 30 years ago, one which I feel is important for our consideration. Ultimately, I believe we are missing out on a major blessing if we seek to excuse ourselves from the teachings of Jesus, which are hard. In fact, we may miss out on our true calling if we imagine that God doesn't really expect us to make such sacrifices. When we do this, I believe we sell ourselves short and end up essentially adhering to a lesser kingdom, as it were, a lesser law. The question could even be posed, are we even truly his disciples? This is not to say that God doesn't love us or that we would be cast off and lose our salvation as a result, but can we truly be called his disciples if we do not follow his sayings? Let's look at several reasons why there may be a disconnect for many Christians between believing in the Sermon on the Mount and the actual practice of those teachings and and then we'll circle back and I'll share that vision that I spoke of. The first reason I would say is socio-cultural influences. The culture we live in can play an important role in shaping our scriptural interpretations and actions. Societal norms, materialism, political leanings, and individualism often conflict with the sermon's emphasis on selflessness, humility, and spiritual wealth over material wealth. This clash between cultural values and the servant's teachings can result in compartmentalization between beliefs and actions. The second factor here, I believe, is selective interpretation. The revolutionary nature of the teachings run contrary to self-interest, self-preservation, and human nature itself. The personal impact of following these teachings cannot be understated. And because of this, I believe it is only natural that we should find diverse interpretations regarding their meaning and how to apply them. Of course, King Benjamin in the Book of Mosiah said that the natural man is an enemy of God, and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint. Many Christians may selectively adhere to certain aspects of the teaching while overlooking or rationalizing others that might challenge their comfort or their lifestyle. This selective approach leads to cherry-picking teachings, which in turn dilutes the call for radical transformation. The third factor here, I believe, is challenges in application. Even if we can manage to refrain from reinterpreting the sayings of Jesus or refuse to deny on any level what he was very plainly saying, the sermon's teachings set a very high standard demanding forgiveness, non-retaliation, and sacrificial love on a level that is unprecedented in human history. 
Implementing these principles in a practical, everyday context poses significant challenges. The complexities of interpersonal relationships, societal pressures, and individual weaknesses hinder the seamless integration of these teachings into daily conduct. But perhaps that is the point. The Apostle Paul argued that the point of the Law of Moses was to reveal sin and our need for a Savior. What if the Sermon on the Mount reveals a level of righteousness that not only makes us uncomfortable, but which may actually be impossible? Instead of denying that Jesus expects us to live up to these teachings or reinterpret those teachings we don't like, what if we're meant to fully face and embrace those teachings as a requirement and thereby crash head on into them like a brick wall? And for this purpose, that we are confronted with the impossibility of the natural man ever being able to live up to them. Is it possible that these teachings are not only to reveal how Christ's disciples are to live, but also reveal the need to go beyond mere belief as we have defined it, to experience that mighty change of heart and be born again as a new creature in Christ. You know, over the centuries, multitudes, multitudes of people were driven into the arms of religion and have been taught that if they join the right church and believe in the right doctrines or follow men who have set themselves up at the place of Christ, they are somehow in the kingdom of God. And if this is what they are taught to believe, then the need for a true born-again experience and even the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost become unnecessary. And so we believe in Jesus, we get baptized in water, and we have men lay their hands on us and make pronouncements, and we get confirmed into what we are told is the one true church, and are to become satisfied in endlessly working to build up not the kingdom of God, but an earthly institution and the traditions of men. How many good men and women, having begun their journey of faith, are like children who were initially conceived, but then aborted in the name of religion and in building up churches, thereby preventing them from coming to full term, spiritually speaking. And having that born-again experience that Jesus told Nicodemus was essential. Before we conclude, I want to share with you the vision that I mentioned earlier. I was in my mid-twenties and newly married. I had recently gone through a conversion experience and I gave my life to Christ. And I was on fire for him. I began to devour the scriptures. And I was reading in the Book of Mormon where God told Nephi, son of Helaman, I will bless thee forever, and I will make thee mighty in word and in deed, in faith and in works, yea, 
even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word. For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. You know, Nephi could move mountains, or he could command the skies to withhold their rain. You know, at this point in my life, I was truly on fire for the Lord, and, and I had made a covenant with him that I would go anywhere that he sent me and do whatever he asked me to do and say whatever he told me to say. And I meant it with everything in me that I could muster. And after reading what the Lord had done for Nephi, I sincerely asked God if he would give me the same power. For I wanted to do for God whatever God needed to be done. And I really did feel in my heart that I would not do contrary to his will. And it was at that very moment when I asked God for this gift that he gave me the vision. And it wasn't a pleasant one. In the vision, two men had broken into our apartment. I was tied up and they were going to do brutal things to my wife while I helplessly watched. And I assumed they would eventually kill us both. My own life wasn't the issue here. It was the prospect of them hurting my wife that I could not abide. And in that moment, as I saw the fear in my wife's eyes and the tears on her cheeks, that in a flash, with a red-hot rage, I exercised the powers of heaven that were at my disposal. And those men were instantly evaporated. I didn't just kill them. They ceased to have ever existed, as if they had never been born. They were nothing, less than nothing. And as the vision faded, the lesson had been learned. I knew with absolute certainty in my heart then that I was not dead to self that I was not dead to my own will, and I could not possibly be trusted with the powers of heaven. You know, as I speak of this, I think about Amulek and Alma, and who refrained to stretch forth their hand and use the power of God to save those who were burned alive for their testimony. Brothers and sisters, if we cannot live the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, including the hard parts, especially the hard parts. And we cannot refrain from trying to reinterpret the sayings and make them more symbolic or not really saying what he was plainly saying, then I submit to you that we cannot be trusted with the powers of heaven. And I would also say that it is a distinct possibility that we cannot truly become obedient to those teachings of Jesus, at least not in their fullness, until we die to self and become a new creature. The hard parts 
of the Sermon on the Mount are not intended to make us throw up our hands or cause us to dismiss them either, but to reveal a truth that we must be confronted with, that Jesus is asking for the impossible, and we cannot do it apart from him. So in conclusion, while the Sermon on the Mount stands as a cornerstone of Christianity, advocating a transformative way of life, the prevailing gap between belief and practice among Christians, Mormons included, raises the question about the extent to which we are truly converted or, or born again. And I believe that only by being honest with ourselves and acknowledging the disparity between what we believe and what we practice or what we are even willing to do at this present stage of our spiritual development will be crucial in fostering the kind of introspection that can lead to needed repentance and acknowledging that we can't do this under our own power, but that we must actively ask, seek, and knock that God might help us to become that new creation in Him. Amen? Well, if I haven't completely offended you yet, I hope you will join us next time. And until then, God bless.